Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligned to our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members and empowers them with the skills necessary to excel in their legal career, whatever career that may be. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode. We march on another week, this time more positive as we hear that vaccinations are rising and death infections are lowering, giving us a glimmer of hope that the summer we can return to some level of normalcy. It's funny how easily we took things like going to the pub and meeting up with mates for granted pre-pandemic, almost as if they were human rights. I'm sure I'm not the only one who can't wait to exercise their right to order a freshly poured pint at the local pub once this pandemic is over. So. Here this week to tell us how to vindicate these rights and more is Leila Bezrob, former trainee at the European Court of Human Rights and dual legal degree holder, Nantes University French law grad and Cardiff University English law graduate. In this episode, we discuss Leila's experience in working for one of the highest courts of Europe, specifically the mentor-like relationship working for a judge, the agility of the ECHR in adapting to the pandemic, and the legal as well as symbolic role taken by the court. Outside the ECHR, we talk about the difficulty of penetrating the human rights market as a law graduate and the ways one can build a reputation within it, as well as Leila's dual degree background and the experience of not only learning two completely different legal systems in two different languages, but also two completely different approaches to legal education. So without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa and enjoy the show. Hi, Leila. Thank you so much for agreeing to come onto the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Max. I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me for your podcast. I'm really glad to be part of it. We're really glad to have you on. Uh, you know, you've got quite an interesting background, especially for our human rights themed episode, but also just for your experience and qualification to jurisdiction, you know, having done a law degree in France and then also subsequently having done the GDL and the LPC in the UK. So before we get on to this amazing journey, why did you want to study law to begin with? What attracted you to law? I think that um, what interested me in the law was the intellectual side of it very analytical but also you can really apply it to everyday life so there was like two points that i really liked about law and i always knew that i wanted to do law so i was kind of lucky compared to others i think <laughs> i totally understand you i mean i think there's one quality that i find with a lot of students is that they know what they want whereas with other degrees it's uh it's different uh the one quality i meet with a lot of law students or former law students is i knew what i wanted uh this is the kind of career that i wanted to get into and so you obviously studied in France and, and did the law degree there. And then you decided to move to the UK to do the GDL 
and an LLM. So first off, why the switch? And then also, what was that like, learning the law in two different ways? You know, the civil law format and then the, the common law format. Yeah, so um, my uh, I had the opportunity with my university to do a master's degree after my three years. And during my three years, I also studied a bit of common law. So I was a bit interested into that. I liked English. And and yeah, so I did my LLM first at Cardiff University in partnership with my uni. And then I just felt like staying was the right option for me because I had the option to do the GDL. And I was thinking at the time that it would open more doors uh, to kind of have, as you said, this civil law side and the common law side as well to have those two qualifications for future prospects, even though at the time I didn't know really what it would be if it would be a bonus or not. But yeah, I was interested into having those two qualifications. And I just kept on going and I stayed for another year to do the LPC. And French universities and UK universities are not similar at all in the way that they're teaching, you know, the law. So um, that was interesting as well, like to have those two sides. But I think, yeah, the main difference maybe was uh, in France, it's a lot of, you know, universities, something that you are really taught lectures and stuff. And then doing at least the GDL, because it was in one year, was very much, you know, you had to get on quickly with, uh, with the law and also with the professional sides. But it was like very enriching to have those two, you know, um, the common law side, the civil law side. So, yeah, it was more like an uh, opportunity thing <laughs> than a thought through <laughs> side stuff but, but yeah I totally understand you I did a, as part of my law degree a, a year abroad in Spain and you know what you said about the French civil law system versus the common law and especially the way that it's teached I found quite different so in Spain at least I, I can imagine it's similar for France it's you know you go to lectures from say you start at 8 a.m or 8 30 and you finish at five or six and it's just you know memorize all this content you've yeah. got the civil code here you know memorize all these articles come to the exam yeah if you know it great if you don't i'm sorry you're out whereas i felt that in the uk it was a lot more of okay well this is what there is to know but now i want you to apply it in all these ways or argue it in these ways yeah i mean there's there's obviously benefits to both sides but i personally found that kind of a struggle into to transition in those two ways of thinking yeah, it's it's very much two different structures, how it's taught. It's very much about um, essays, dissertations in France. So it's very much about like thinking of the law rather than applying it at least at the LLB level kind of thing. So yeah, so it was interesting to have the UK side. <laughs> and so then what attracted you to a career in human rights? I think, again, um, when I started law, I was very much interested into public law, constitutional law. So I think it started from there. And then also everything that was international, so international law, things like that. And also, again, I had this, you know, commercial law is okay, but I was more attracted to human rights, things like that, things that are very much also like political, you know, so it's very political topics. And I had some experience with, uh, you know, working in some charities or organizations. So that's how it started, I think, with the first modules that I took during my um, years, first years. 
So that about the political aspect of it, is it the institutional aspect? So changing institutions, changing kind of society, or is it more about the direct impact? I mean, because, you know, I, I meet plenty of people who aren't fascinated with corporate law because at the end of the day, it's just, you know, a hundred different contracts and it just becomes also fictitious <laughs> and boring with numbers. But no, I'm, I'm interested in why human rights or why constitutional law specifically, like what were, what were the factors in those subjects that attracted you to it? Yeah, I think as you said, as you explained, it's um, it's something that has an impact on all of us, really. So that's why I'm saying it's political. It's something that touches all of us, something that applies to all of us, and that uh, provoke big changes, you know, in the societies that we are living in. I think when you look at, for example, like the institutions that are involved in human rights. But it can very much have an impact on individuals, you know, like when you are in private practice doing human rights law, which is very, very diverse as well. Again, um, it also has impacts for people in their everyday life. So that's why I really liked about it. And specifically, it seems that you've had quite a journey in human rights law, you know, both at a law firm level, but even now as a BCHR level, kind of take me through that journey in human rights law. You know, what was that like or what was your thought process there? So I think uh, the first experience with human rights that I had was doing a pro bono with the Cardiff University, which was the Innocence Project. And, you know, it was working on criminal cases, okay, but it also touches upon human rights that you have as an individual. So I really like that feeling of, you know, helping individuals with their rights and through procedures and stuff like that. And then actually I had an experience in the law firm, which was IP, which was completely different. <laughs> so I also touched upon, you know, other things um, that I liked, that I enjoyed doing, but that wasn't as rewarding as helping individuals. And then I, um, when I came back uh, from the UK, I went to Paris to work in the law firm. And there I was doing a lot of immigration, asylum, Human rights is very broad, right? So um, so you touch on human rights in those subjects again. And I really enjoyed the fact of, again, helping people, individuals with their rights in a country, to go to a country, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was, um, I learned that I will be a trainee at the European Court of Human Rights. And again, this is a very different experience because you are in an institution. So you're not actually working in a private practice firm. You are working at a distance with people. But again, it's working for institutions who are doing human rights. So again, this has another side adding to all of that I've done before, the kind of impact of, of institutions on human rights, society, political things. So yeah, that was my journey in human rights. <laughs> it's amazing. You've got a, a diversity of experiences. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm much more of an intellectual property fan. So I, I, I love IP rights. I quite liked it. <laughs> I could understand why IP rights isn't as cool as, as human rights, but uh, no, still, still very much a fan. Um, it's quite interesting that you've had such a diversity of experiences, again, on the one hand, from a pro bono role, on the other hand, from a kind of a private law firm role, and now again, at an intergovernmental organizational role. How was the process of, of choosing these? Was it methodical? Or was it again, about all these opportunities, as you discussed beforehand? Because notoriously, at least in the UK, there's that thing about getting a role in the human rights sector is very difficult and very competitive. 
And I um, and I agree with that because when I was studying, um, you also had the constraints of exams, etc. So it's not easy to to get a role at that point. But um, so what I did is, you know, try to build my experience with the pro bono. I worked for charities, um, the personal support unit, for example, which is also like not human rights, but still helping people with charities. This is how um, it really starts because, as you said, it's really difficult to get into that field and have a job at the start I think and it's a very vicious cycle at the end because when you want to get a role they ask for experience but then again when they're asking for experience it's hard to get those so I think that what helped me the most was having those voluntary um, experiences pro bono uh, charities also maybe writing about human rights or at least you know like during my LLM it was heavily based on international but also human rights so I was writing essays and things like that because I enjoyed it and it's part of this experience as well that makes it easier afterwards to get a job so yeah I agree it's difficult but the first step I think is to get little experiences and then try to to then try and get a job like uh, in this sector. That's very kind of admirable. I mean, obviously, you know, as you as you identify this catch 22 of working in the human rights sector of, you know, if you want to apply for one of these jobs, you need experience, but you can't get experience because there are no jobs offering this experience. So the fact that you've managed to salvage all these different kind of volunteer roles and also other roles and build that up to kind of where you are today is, is, is quite a fascinating journey. I mean, you know, you compare that with the corporate law structure and it's very much, okay, you know, get an internship, got an internship, get that job and, you know, next 30 years sorted at a comfortable <laughs> salary, everything, every, everything is good. So no, I admire you greatly for your journey. Now let's talk about the European Court of Human Rights, because I mean, that was probably what popped out most of me when I first came across your LinkedIn. ECHR, it's this institution that I've always read in constitutional law and international law. But what is it like being at the ECHR? I was actually very surprised to get that internship. Um, I don't know if you want to go through, maybe we'll talk later about how to actually get there, but um, how it is on a daily basis. Uh, so I've been a trainee for now five months and uh, I'm working with one of the judges. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's an incredible experience first, because as you said, you know, for me as well, there was the representation, you know, of human rights, the institution that is doing human rights in Europe is the Council of Europe and the ECHR, which is part of the council. And yeah, I think being a trainee there is like being at the end of the day, a trainee anywhere. <laughs> but the thing is that you have this insights that you wouldn't get from just reading about the ACHR from the outside, which is kind of a blur around this institution, how it works, etc. So working there, you actually understand how the work is being done, how um, the lawyers and the judges, they work together to process cases and to solve those cases and, and to judge cases. So you have that insight being at the court. And it's an incredible experience working with the judge on a daily basis. You know, uh, you have contact with somebody who is quite important 
because of their previous experiences that they're there for a reason and they can really teach you important things and the experience that you get you really get an insight into how the judges are working but also the institution as a whole you understand how all the parts of the council are working together to make this big institution and you're working on the cases which are then released and that you can read about so Yeah, it's very interesting to be part of the court. <laughs> Even though with COVID, it was kind of difficult, you know, because we were away, locked down for <laughs> two months. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, but we still had contact, you know, with our supervisors. <laughs> yeah, not the, not the most uh, perfect timing to take a traineeship during the pandemic. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I find at least that kind of virtual work is nothing like in-person or in-office working. That's true. That's true. But I want to talk about now being paired with a judge and that close working relationship with someone of such a high esteemed role and, and such a powerful role within an institution. You know, on the one hand, what is it that you do for the judge that you're paired up with? Kind of, you know, what are the tasks that you do? And then secondly, you've really mentioned on the, the closeness and, and someone who can teach you a lot of stuff. And, you know, Comment on what that having that sort of mentorship relationship is like. Yeah, so on a daily basis, I was working on cases, uh, commenting on cases or on advisory opinions. Um, I was also helping my judge with her. Uh, she is an academic, so she writes a lot, uh, releases books. So I was helping her with those uh, kind of things as well. I was attending their section meeting, which is the deliberation of the judges where they discuss cases. So you know how that works. You see how they vote, how they talk about cases. So it's very insightful, you know, to be present at those meetings. But on a daily basis, yeah, I was reading a lot, doing some legal research. It's very much an analytical job. So it's very much about reading, trying to command, trying to take decisions. Yes, that's the judge's role. Right. I was helping in, you know, oh, maybe we could argue this, but we could also argue that. And then you try and bring some cases in what the court has been doing before, completing that with legal research and stuff like that. So that was on the daily basis. And yes, by doing that, by discussing cases, uh, you really enter, you know, the judges everyday life, they, they what they do and and um, and their job. and. That's what's great with the court is that they are really humble people. The judges, you can approach them, you can talk to them, your supervisor. I was in contact on a daily basis with her. I was seeing her from time to time. And at those points, you can exchange, you can uh, talk about the cases, but not only. You can also talk about you, how you want to, to be trained, what you want to learn, because they have a lot of experience before that. There were a lot of them were either constitutional judges in their own countries or doing PhDs or teaching or, you know, academics, you know. So they have a breadth of experience that you can really build on that can help you in the future. They're really friendly, really approachable. That's what I want to say. So, yeah, having that is, uh, is really good for when you're thinking about your next role as well, because you can actually, you know, they've had those long journeys with a lot of experiences and they can teach you a lot about the experiences that they had. <laughs> so it was great to be in a close relationship like this and be mentored, as you said, by somebody 
with that stance, if I may say. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, especially, you know, obviously, you know, you're talking to some of the most important judges of Europe. <laughs> yeah. And then like the fact that they're so approachable and, and, and so nice and willing to help is just kind of like a, a shocker. I mean, you know, this is someone who... Yeah, I was stressed out before my first day. <laughs> I was stressed out before my first day. I was like, how is it going to be like? Is it going to be fine? Like, can I speak to them, you know? <laughs> Should I over? <laughs> no, actually, it's very, you know, uh, humble. Um, they're really humble. They're really there. You know, they're really like anybody else with a lot of experience. Interestingly about the ECHR that I wanted to touch on as well is, you know, obviously we're talking about a theme from our discussion so far as human rights as a word can mean many things. And you've explored it from many different angles uh, through your journey. What has the ECHR allowed you to uncover? about human rights? Because from what I remember from my, my law school days, the ECHR takes on more than a legal role, a bit of a political or kind of symbolic role in Europe as the nature of an intergovernmental organization such as the Council of Europe. So what you really understand when you actually take part to um, the judges meeting, what they discussing the cases and see how they work, you really uh, realize that they have a fundamental role. They have such a responsibility, you know, as you said, because their decision will influence every country, basically. And um us as individuals as well. And so that's what you really get from this experience is like you understand what responsibility they have, what responsibility it is to decide on such matters. You know, it's an individual bringing a case against the state, but it's much more than that. It's that decision will then have an impact on national legislation. It will, it will have an impact on domestic courts. It will have an impact on the political sphere as well in Europe, in, in all the states, in 47 states. So it's much more than just deciding on one case. It's very much about deciding on society, on political matters that touch upon all of us. So that was my biggest, I think, realization with the ECHR, even though that's what you have as well when you read about the ECHR, you, you understand that they have that impact. But when you are inside, actually, you see how this is important when they're taking decisions. So yeah, that was the, the greatest realization. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, like I said, you, you've, got, you've got the insider's perspective of one of the most important institutions of, of Europe, and that's fascinating. Now, how has the ECHR coped with COVID? I mean, on the one hand, your training ship has moved virtually, but obviously, you know, one of the biggest courts in all of Europe, which has a reputation for having quite a, a big caseload, uh, at the moment, you know, how are they able to adapt all these court procedures into the online environment? They had, they have a lot of cases, they have a lot of application. And I think that they have been very flexible. And um, actually, the, um, the president's panel, the president of the courts really was amazed and congratulated all of staff members and judges for their work during the lockdown because I think that they were very efficient. They were really happy with the amount of cases that were treated, that were uh, processed and judged. So yeah, actually they dealt with it incredibly efficiently and also they adapted quite well. For example, you had a couple of Grain Chamber cases which were virtual. So I, I um, attended one of the Grain Chamber cases. We were allowed because 
we were trainees, but the public wasn't allowed to the hearing. But uh, so both sides were pleading their case virtually uh, with the judges being there. And I think that shows you how quickly they adapted to the situation. And the number of cases processed was amazing. Like the level of work uh, that has been done has been great uh, during the lockdown. They really pointed that out. And I think that even as trainees, we felt that we were still working. You know, you have certain issues about confidentiality and stuff that you have to think about when you are working away from the office. But again, it was dealt very efficiently. So yeah, <laughs> they did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's amazing. I mean, you know, obviously growing up, I think we all have this popular conception of judges and courts, you know, old ancient institutions that are like the last to change but here you see this is a very agile institution that responds very well and i don't know if you'll agree but this idea of virtual courts you know might be here to stay or might have a, a greater prominence in the future yeah, I think everybody agrees that you have to adapt very quickly to to the environment, to what's happening outside. And I think they had the staff to do it as well. They um, they really, everybody gathered around that and agreed that uh, the need for flexibility and adaptability was uh, important. And they, they were proud of that, I think. <laughs> No, fantastic. Yeah, A star, A star for them. <laughs> uh, now, j- just a bit of a, a curious question. On the one hand, COVID has made it such that organizations have to adapt to working virtually. But I was wondering from a human rights standpoint, whether there's any cause for discussion, uh, I don't know if at the ECHR level or in your personal opinion as well, you know, whether human rights are here, are involved, and we need to scrutinize, especially when governments decide to go full on lockdown or not full enough lockdown. And what are the implications? Because it's always in a I don't know, from from my readings of of constitutional law and dealing with human rights, it was always in the case of a national security matter or a national, you know, societal interest matter that human rights started going out the window first. So what is your opinion about the COVID pandemic and what is the future of human rights going to look like? Now is a very interesting um, time for human rights, as you said, because if you look at convention rights, all of those rights were in a way impacted uh, by the measures taken during the pandemic. So there is certainly discussions about how those human rights were impacted during the pandemic. There will be for sure some reports on that. Personally, at at the court, I don't know if, because it's very much, um, you know, that the court is kind of the last resort thing. So it's going to be discussed very much nationally, but also at an international level, maybe in the near future, not at the moment, but maybe some cases will be brought. I I don't really know, but um, because of individuals impacted by the pandemic and some measures that were taken. But again, I think it is a hot topic at the moment in the human rights field. I've seen a lot of reports going on by human rights charities and how COVID has impacted human rights. It's very much linked. And as I said, all of our human rights, uh, the rights out in the convention have been impacted. So um, we'll see. At the court, there is not so much a question about that at the moment. Um, it was felt as a member of the public, if I may say, but uh, maybe in the future, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, as you said, you know, with courts, I think it was one statistic that, you know, the average case takes a couple of years to actually end up in front of the European Court of Human Rights, if not longer. So yeah, exactly. Well, politi- political matter for now, but never know what the future might look like. Exactly. No, definitely, definitely interesting to hear that perspective of it being a hot topic and, and seeing how, you know, at the end of the day, this is a trending thing. It changes every day. Government policies and government powers change by the day. So It'll be very interesting to keep an eye on that and see, you know, to what extent are our convention rights being respected or not. I mean, because we've got this concept of qualified rights, but you look at the language of the convention and, you know, you're allowed to qualify this right insofar as is necessary for a democratic society. We all know exactly what that means. We all know exactly where that line is. No, it's it's just a matter of such inherent political debates. <laughs> It is a political debate. It, the, 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 it's, it's, it's so blurred. It's never black or white. It's very much up for debate. And I think there will be a lot of debate about that for the next months, even years. <laughs> for all our eager human rights listeners, what do you think are the skills that are necessary to, to become a human rights lawyer or to be a part of, of the ECHR. And I think this might be linked as well to what it was like applying to the ECHR. But before we kind of go into that specifics, what are the skills that a human rights lawyer needs? I think um, it really depends on the structure that you're in. So I think that some common skills that I think you really need is communication, oral or um, written communication because you spend a lot of time drafting, reading and reporting on things. So you need to be precise when you're writing, for example, when when you're writing an opinion, a comment for your judge. And then I think also a lot of um, analytical and critical thinking involved um, when you're working for an institution because you have to analyze all that stuff. It's very much about thinking about the law, thinking about what it means for your case or for the work that you're doing. And being resourceful because you're doing a lot of legal research, you are going to end up looking at some uh, legislation in other countries that you don't know anything about, you know. So I think those three main skills um, are important if you're working for an institution. If you're working in private practice for your firm, for example, where you're dealing with your clients face to face, then you add to that those three skills that are important, but you add to that also empathy and interpersonal skills, which are very much important when you're dealing with people. So I think, yeah, those are the main ones. So very much keep that analytical law student hat on to really, you know, get in depth with the research, the law, you know, the cases, the facts. Yeah, attention to detail, everything that goes with that afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastically put. Yeah, no, I don't think I could add anything to that. Um, and so how was it applying to, to the ECHR? How did you find it and, and how would you recommend to somebody eager to get into the biggest institution of, of Europe for, for human rights? Yeah, so to be honest... Um, at the time when I was I was applying for um, multiple roles at multiple um, in multiple structures, I was applying for law firms. I was applying for um, the EU institutions. So the, the main difference that I found uh, between you know 
we all know that applying for a legal job is very tough. It takes a lot of time. It's very much focused on your experiences. You really have to explain. You really have to show that you have certain skills. And what I found when I applied for the ECHR is that they're very much interested in your background, of course, your experiences, but I think mostly in your motivation and your passion for law, your motivation to be there and what it means to you to um, be part of that institution. So I liked the fact that it was around that. It was easier to explain um, and to go on about your motivation that, you know, going through the draining process when you're applying for law firms about your skills and details. So I was quite surprised by that, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't expect either to be um, taken on because I thought the application was so short. You know, you had to explain just your motivation, a bit of background, but that was that wasn't really necessary at the end of the day. But yeah, your motivation was the main thing, and I think that is. Because the law sector is competitive and it's hard to get that first job or that first experience, it's very refreshing to have that, to be able to explain your motivation rather than having to painfully find for experiences that maybe you don't have or that not legal, which is much more harder, I think, to explain and to, to find that your motivation. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautifully put. I think especially this focus on experience rather than motivation can be prejudicial. I mean, you know, not all of us have access to human rights jobs or, you know, just we all come from such diverse backgrounds that we don't have equalities of opportunities. And so therefore it's prejudice based on who has access to the human rights role. So Definitely, the fact that yeah. such a top institution has an approach based on motivations is is quite refreshing. And I'm, and I'm really glad that everything worked out and you're here today to answer answer these questions. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now, if you had to say a few words of inspiration to, to people who are listening right now, you know, people who want to get into the human rights route, but, but aren't so sure, you know, they're, they're doubting, you know, their abilities, they're doubting the security of, of the job prospects, you know, having yourself gone through that journey, having had such a diverse and exciting journey just from our conversations, you know, what would you say to those people that are considering embarking on this journey? Um, I would say that if you have that motivation and determination to work in human rights, it is a long journey. It is a long process, but the obstacles are part of that journey. They're good and they shouldn't stop you if it's what you want to do. And of course, you have like the financial obstacles. You have a lot of obstacles, but at the end of the day, if you really want to do that, you will be able to find opportunities if you are resilient and try to have the breadth of experiences. You will get through those obstacles and finally arrive to those roles that you really want. So don't give up is <laughs> 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 what I would say. There is There are solutions around certain problems, certain obstacles. Yeah. Beautifully put. Before I let you go, I always like to kind of have a, a bit of a fun question round to, to, to everyone that jumps on. Um, and so the question that I'd like to ask you is, what was your favorite character on Suits? <gasps> okay. <laughs> I think um, I'd lo I loved Mike. 
I loved his, I wish I had the, his ability to, you know, just read something and just print it into my mind. It will make things just so easy. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like how, you know, he went um, above obstacles, you know, in a very intelligent manner. And with his abilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish we 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 all wish we had his photographic memory abilities. That that would have made you know That's the laundry amazing. a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Leila, for coming onto the podcast. Um, if anybody has any follow up questions or, or wants to get in touch with you, uh, where where can they reach you? Thank you uh, for having me first. I really enjoyed. I hope this will help uh, people listening to the podcast. And if anybody has any questions, just feel free to uh, contact me, for example, on LinkedIn. So you can find me, Leila Bezdrup, on LinkedIn. I think there is my email address as well on LinkedIn. Um, so feel free to drop me a message on LinkedIn or through my email address. And I'll, I'll be happy to help if I can. <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, Leila, for coming on. Thank you, Max. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about the ECHR and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Leila. We've linked her LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our Unsung Heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedridge for producing the absolute banger of a theme song. Enjoying Legal Tea? Well, we want to hear from you. What areas would you like us to explore? What topics would you like us to brew up? Send us a message on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk or shoot us an email at hello at legaltea.uk to spill us your tea. Till next time. Thank you.